Okay, so to start this story, we've got to go back a little bit. It's August 24th, 2011, and a man named Omar makes an abrupt left-hand turn in front of a police officer in Framingham, Massachusetts. No signal, no nothing, and the cop and someone in a car behind have to slam on their brakes. Omar's pulled over. He's sort of argumentative about what just happened. He says he hasn't been drinking, but... Oh, wait, he actually has had one beer. Wait, no, maybe it's more like two beers, actually. During the sobriety test, he's constantly interrupting the police officer's directions and starting the test before he's instructed to do so. So he fails. He's booked. He ends up blowing a .14, all this according to the media story citing the police report. Anyway, here's the weird part. When police ask him about the phone call he's allotted, he says this. I think I'd like to call the White House. political savvy among us might have started to remember this story. Omar is Omar Obama, uncle to Barack. And one of the reasons this story got the attention it did was that it turned out that Omar, whose real name is Anyango, had been ordered to be deported all the way back in 1992 and had been living here illegally since. And so naturally, questions started popping up about what the DUI charge meant for Omar's status in America. And the thing was, nobody really knew. As much as was publicly available about the actual arrest and criminal charges, the immigration system remained a brick wall. Our editor, Marty Barron, at the time came over and said, you know, how, how is this possible? This is Maria Sacchetti, who covers immigration for the Boston Globe. Again and again, we're always confronting this situation where we can't get anything out of the immigration system when they arrest or detain someone, um, but we can know everything else in the other system. And I sort of threw up my hands, and I was like, Marty, I know. That was the moment that sparked her first deep dive into these issues. And so we just, we decided to take a hard look at that um, at that moment, and that that's what's continued, you know, to kind of guide our coverage. That this idea of arresting people and um, considering, you know, banishing them from the country, deporting them, um, you know, that that it's an agency that has a lot of power and very little scrutiny. And as journalists, I, I guess we, you know, we feel that we have a responsibility to look into that. The result was justice in the shadows a 2012 series that poked holes in the immigration system and drew attention to the fact that the public didn't have any way of finding out the names of hundreds of thousands of detained immigrants each year. The series was a finalist for an IRE award. We're finally getting close to catching up with the timeline, bringing us to the story we're talking about today, a piece that found that Immigration and Customs Enforcement, also known as ICE, freed sex offenders, often without notifying states. To get that story, the Globe actually did get their hands on the names of detained immigrants. It took a lawsuit, which was launched back during the reporting for the 2012 series. See how this comes full circle? I'm Sean Shinneman, and you're listening to the IRE Radio Podcast.
for almost all of its existence, the immigration system has been secret. That's one of the first things Maria told me when we talked last month, that the immigration system has pretty much always operated in the shadows. Normally in, in the American judicial system, you know, civil and criminal court records are public. If the government uses its authority to lock someone up to take away their liberty, um, you know, one of the one of the most severe things the government can do to a person, um, that's a public record. And it's not to shame the person who's arrested. It's, it's to protect all of us, you know, from, from um, the government abusing its, its power and to be transparent. But in the immigration system, that does not happen. The arrests are not public, for the most part, unless immigration chooses to disclose them. But that often doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has, we found that that was endangering Americans and immigrants alike. Maria says part of that endangering of immigrants had to do with some cases in which immigrants were poorly treated and cared for, medically speaking, once they were detained. But increasingly, they're dealing with criminals. And, um, and with that comes, some say, some responsibility, like to register sex offenders, um, to notify victims when people who have, um, who have assaulted them or tried to kill them, you know, get, get out of jail. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that kind of falls away in the immigration system. You know, it's a, you know, even if they're taken directly from prison to the immigration system, um, that responsibility, you know, to, to protect victims and to um, inform the public has, um, has, you know, often slipped away. During the reporting for the 2012 series, Maria submitted more than 20 FOIA requests. Among them, she'd asked for the names of criminals who were ordered deported, but then ultimately released in the U.S. because their home countries wouldn't take them back. ICE had originally provided a list of 6,800 criminals nationwide, which included 201 that were convicted of murder. There were a bunch of other serious charges, too. The list was missing one pretty significant detail, the names of each offender. Were you expecting them to to deny that request before you sent it? Yeah, so we, and it was one of, um, uh, I think, uh, two dozen FOIAs we filed. So mm-hmm. we had expected that, and um, I mean, we knew that a lot of people felt that the law was not on our side. The Globe appealed to ICE over the names, but lost, and then filed a lawsuit, the New York Times and Maria Sacchetti versus the Department of Homeland Security. Keep in mind that the Times still own the Globe at this point. Was it a tough decision to, to do that? I mean, were you in on that decision-making process? Right, so that's above my authority, but I yeah. completely supported it. And I thought, I thought it, was a, it was a courageous act. And in June of 2013, a judge ordered that the names be released to the Boston Globe. This is a major victory and a turning point in our story. You can think of the list, and remember, this is a list of criminal immigrants released exclusively to the Globe. You can think of the list as a proper noun, capital T, capital L. You'll hear us mention it several more times in this episode. Fast forward to 2014. Maria was working on a different story then, one about a man from Vietnam with a lengthy criminal record. The man had a very common Vietnamese name, so things were foggy at first. And I finally just kept at it and kept at it. And finally, I just said, you know, why is this guy not in the sex offender registry? He should be easy to find from my desk. And then I got my answer. It's, you know, because he never registered and, um, and, and nobody could say where he was. And then I decided, so at the time I was kind of doing a regional story and I, I decided I was going to pull everybody I knew who had been convicted of a sex-related crime nationwide 
And I, because other states have done such a good job getting court records online, I was able to do that story very quickly and, and find out who was registered and who wasn't. So keep in mind, she's pulling these names from the list. And I was finding in many cases that we were the only ones who would know that someone had failed to register as a sex offender, which I found shocking. There's a lot of debate over sex offender registries and how well they work, but, you know, states have put them in place because they're one way to share information about folks who many of them, you know, could, you know, are in danger of reoffending. Whereas some of the offenders didn't show up in the registry at all, others were there, but their entries were inaccurate, sometimes severely. So we, we called New York, Florida, um, California, and we found... You know, a lot of sex offender registries where people, you know, were, were reported as um, deported or still jailed and when they had been free, sometimes for years. You could argue that this is the more serious offense. You're a victim of a sex crime, walking around with the peace of mind that your offender is behind bars or in another country, when in reality, you could be in danger. Maria leads her story with a man named Santos Hernandez Carrera. Hernandez Carrera spent about half his life in prison for raping a woman at knife point. Immigration officials wanted to deport him straight from jail, and as Maria wrote, that's what happened, as far as the public knew. Until about a month before the Globe story came out, the sex offender registry showed that Hernandez Carrera had indeed been sent back to Cuba. Maria knew from the list that Hernandez Carrera had been released in 2008. She found out in 2014, working on another story, that he had been re-detained in Florida. And then earlier this year, while she was working on this story, she did a search of ICE's online detainee locator and found that he'd been let go once again, although there was no guarantee that it was in Florida. So to research the release, the Globe called three police departments, searched court records, and talked to ICE. Turns out, he was again in Florida. I did not know, but was able to confirm through Florida that ICE released him again in this year without notifying them. Maria's reporting almost certainly impacted ICE's dealing with Florida. After she inquired about the case, the Miami-Dade Police Department was notified about Hernandez Carrera. He was quickly located and registered for the first time in Florida. What was it like to sort of try to try to report and write something that seemed to be changing while you were reporting it? Yeah, I mean, that actually happens a lot um, with the immigration system. I mean, I've, I've had it happen while, while reporting on immigrants who aren't criminals um, and, uh, you know, will ask for an interview or or something, and then they'll, they'll you know, release them. It's complicated because I, I, I try to ha- start having the conversation as, as soon as possible mm-hmm. in, in many ways. You know, it's kind of, you know, I, when, I, when I couldn't find that one individual, um, I asked them about him. And, and that's what led to the, to the other stories. And, and I think, and in a way, that approach helped me later because um, I asked them about that one individual and they gave me the response um, in which they did not mention, you know, that they, were, they had signed up for this program or that they were doing these things. Oh, yeah. So in the middle of the reporting for this story in May, ICE registered for a Department of Justice system where they can send alerts to local and state authorities when they release a sex offender. And then later, when I had found um, problems with, with many, many more people, you know, they said, well, we've, we've already signed up and this is happening. And um, I guess all I can say is we felt it was just so important to get it right. 
and to not to not rush something like this. And you know, and also to be as transparent. I mean, I, I really believe in you know, like all reporters, you know, and in, in, in checking the facts and you know having conversations before publication. You know, um, about um, you know this is what I'm going to say, and, uh, and you know making sure that everybody has has their say. Immigration is, of course, an issue that will always elicit strong responses. Maria felt a little pressure writing about criminal immigrants because she didn't want to paint all immigrants in a bad light. But ultimately, she found it a worthwhile story. I do think it, it shows how important it is to look at, at all sides of an issue and, and to write stories that, you know, that, that also show that you know, the vast majority of immigrants aren't criminals. You know, to, to balance out your coverage. You know, I hadn't, I frankly, you know, before a 2012 series, I hadn't done a ton of uh, stuff on immigrants and um, and the, the criminal system and deportation. You know, and then an editor suggested that we do look at it, and I, I think that, you know, that was a good idea. I guess what I would say is if you don't cover all sides, you can't see all sides of the story. And that, to me, is the most important thing. The problems Maria was looking into obviously struck a nerve, and not just with policymakers. I received a lot of help from um, people statewide who answered my questions quickly. Um, You know, uh, we ended up gathering records from Missouri and uh, Florida, I mean, and just all across the country. And, you know, I think people felt like this was this is really important and, um, and, and often not something they have, you know, people who work in law enforcement and checking on sex offenders have a lot of free time to, to deal with, you know, to, to really urge a federal agency to, to change its policies. And, um, and so, you know, it was, it was good to be able to write about that. Maria's story ran in June and immediately lawmakers spoke up. And then in early August, Massachusetts Congressman Bill Keating filed legislation that would require ICE to help local and state authorities register sex offenders before they're released. Keating told The Globe, quote, What we're doing is giving the public the same measure of safety that they have when a prisoner is released as opposed to a criminal who's been released through ICE. It's common sense. It's also interesting to see, you know, two lawmakers, more than two now, but to, to kind of take up this issue, instead of just having it be ICE's policy, um, they're, they're trying to make this um, part of federal law. It, it's interesting because some of the first people I talked to about this out in um, Washington State were saying that there's an ICE agent out there who does a very good job, um, you know, informing them about sex offenders. But, you know, what if he goes away? What will happen then? Thanks for listening. You can find past episodes and show notes on our website, irie.org slash podcast. On our next episode, IRE contributor Aaron Pellish takes us behind the story with Michael Davidson of the Sarasota Herald Tribune. At the beginning of the story, we had one person that was, you know, accusing the police of wrongdoing and that they had suffered a, a traumatic injury because of that. And so we looked into it. And when I found out the sheer number of bites that Northport had, I realized a lot of people had been injured. And I saw the photographs and I realized the extent of those injuries. And then I started calling people and everybody we spoke to could tell me how their life had been 
you know, forever changed by the amount of damage that had been done to them by these police canines. Make sure to tune in next time to hear all about their investigation. IRE web editor Sarah Hutchins edits the podcast, and you can reach her at web at ire.org. You can find me at Sean S, that's S-H-A-W-N-S, at ire.org. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for this episode. From Columbia, Missouri, I'm Sean Shinneman. Podcast. Podcast.